little video clip that caught my attention this week and got me to uh, reading another book. I needed another book, so... mantra of the American dream is to advance yourself with hard work, ingenuity, innovation, you can have it all. The frightening reality of the gospel, Jesus does call us to give up everything we have. And he may tell any one of us to sell all of our possessions and give them to the poor. But we don't believe this. If we form Jesus to look like us and be who we want him to be, then even when we gather together and sing our praises and lift our hands, the reality is we are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We are worshiping and singing to ourselves. We have a master who demands radical obedience. A mission that warrants radical urgency. And we do not have time to waste our lives living out a Christian spin on the American dream. The most glorious reason you exist is for the proclamation of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And it's more than having a nice life. It's about giving our lives and our families and our jobs for the proclamation of the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. If we're going to live for the sake of 4.5 billion lost people and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who are dying every day because they don't have food on their table, then that means radical change in our lives and our families and the church. Church, we are plan A, and there is no plan B. That's a wake-up call, huh? So what are some of the messages that you get out of a clip like that? We need to express our faith with action, right? That would be one. We need to take the church out of the church. We've been hearing that a lot, right? But we need to abandon the American Christian mindset, I think that's an exciting one. If we do that, boy, look out. And really, the overall message is we need to abandon all for Jesus. Bottom line. But did any of you uh, pick up the subtle little visual message that kept being flashed? A little image of the house being turned upside down? Yeah? Uh, You got that? That image very powerfully conveys a New Testament biblical message found in Acts 17. Let's see if we can pull this up. Uh, Probably ESV on this one. Can he do it? Can he do it, folks? We're trying to tech up here. Oh, okay, look at this, huh? There you go, mother. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Hallelujah. These men who have turned the world upside down. How often has the church embraced this accusation as its mantra, like a motivational slogan used to spur us on to tackle the woes of the world? But are we scriptural in our application, or have we, in fact, taken the scripture out of context? And is it really all that important if we have? I would say that we are off the mark in our application, and yes, it does matter. Maybe more than we realize. Are we, in fact, called to turn the world upside down? First, let's consider who the accusation is coming from. It says a mob of wicked men and rabble. Rabble. Oh, I was a rabble once. <laughs> Johnny Yuma was a rabble. Oh, no. <laughs> wrong, wrong program, right? <laughs> and how is their world being turned upside down? They explain that by saying that there is another king, Jesus. Think about this. There was no war in God's original creation. No disease in the Garden of Eden, no sickness, no hatred, no murder, no pain, no tears, no suffering, no mobs of wicked men to accuse God's messenger. No, in the Garden of God, it was all good until sin turned the world upside down. The reality is that the world of Paul's day, the world of our day, is already upside down. And the mission that the early church saw, the mission that we need to get a hold of, is this, to turn the world right side up. To proclaim there is another king, Jesus. Our king is not a despot, not a tyrant who throws the lives of his people into turmoil through brutality, greed, or oppression. No, our king, Jesus, is a redeemer, a deliverer, a savior, a healer, a restorer. He brings order to the chaos of our lives and gives us peace beyond our understanding. Our King, Jesus, 
breaks the shackles of bondage and sets the captives free. He rescues the downtrodden from fear and causes their weakness to become their strength. Our King, Jesus, entered into suffering and death in order to bring real joy and life to a fallen and lost world. He came to right the wrongs of sin and injustice and to turn the world right side up. And he wants us to join him in that great work of restoration. If I come to you and say that I want to turn your world upside down, then I become perceived as a destructive and antagonistic force in your life, and my actions will always be interpreted by the stated intent. Do you understand what I just said? If the church sends the world the message, we're here to turn your world upside down. That is not a restorative message. They will always interpret our actions on the stated intent. Oh, I know why those Christians are coming. I know what they're up to. Haven't we heard that in this community? Haven't we heard that? We know they've got a secret agenda. They're here to turn our world upside down. They want to disrupt all that is peaceful and sacred to us. They want to destroy what we hold, hold dear. But if I am perceived as one coming alongside you to help you turn your world right side up, then my task will be seen as a work of grace and welcomed. So it becomes essential for us to understand what our mission is, and how we are to live out our faith. We are being called upon, as Jesus was by God, to live out a radical faith, where our words and our works line up with the express and express the words and the works of the Father as demonstrated by the life that Jesus lived on the earth. Radical faith is a lively faith, full of life and hope, not just spoken about, but demonstrated through actions fueled by love, compassion, vision, and a rock-solid belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and worthy of our all, that he is the King. I want you to listen to how the Message Bible translates James chapter 2, verses 12 through 24. And I think he's going to put it on the screen there. Remember, this is the message. You won't read it in what you've got in your lap. Talk and act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule that sets us free. That is the perfect law of liberty. For if you refuse to act kindly... You can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance... You come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved, and you say, 
Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you walk out, off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Hmm. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? <laughs> I love this guy, right? <laughs> I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together like a hand and glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God? but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? Well, that's just great. Demons do that. What good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? I think we ought to get message Bibles in <laughs> uh, Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that God, God Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? Radical faith is not patting yourself on the back because you make it to church to worship Jesus Christ on Sunday morning or pay your tithe as a mere Christian obligation. Radical faith is presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, and allowing him to use the life he gave you as he sees fit. Radical faith prays, not my will, not my kingdom, but yours. Spend me, O God. Pour me out like water on dry ground so that the weary and the thirsty will know your grace. Radical faith is uncomfortable. Radical faith is inconvenient. Radical faith is costly, and at the same time, radical faith is satisfying. Radical faith is rewarding, and radical faith is impacting. Walking in radical faith will put your world into proper perspective because you will see God move. Signs, wonders, miracles, healings, deliverance, all fueled by radical faith. The thing I'm afraid that for the most part has been rejected by the American Christian mindset is simply this. 
the cost of the cross. Radical faith is embedded in the cross. You can't exercise radical faith until you're willing to shoulder the cross. Not my will, but yours be done is a statement of radical faith. Listen to the scripture. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him did what? Endured the cross. Despised the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now here's the thing. We've all been called by God to build his church on the earth. Is that right? Listen to what Jesus said about the builders in his day. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected? Morning, Annie. The stone that the builders rejected. I want to ask you this morning, what stone has the American church builders rejected? Stone of the cross. Cost of the cross. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You see, it seems to be a typical situation that the thing the Lord wants us to build off is the very thing that religion rejects because we want to do it our way. Radical faith is crucified faith. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by faith in the Son of God. This is crucified faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you ready this morning to step on to the altar of radical faith for the cause of Christ? I want to start this process today. Uh, We're going to be addressing radical faith, picking up after next week the invisible children, and really I think it's appropriate that they come as such a picture of radical faith. We've seen it in the cost that Nate Hen was willing to pay in laying down his life as a martyr in Uganda for the cause of Christ. And we're going to pick up this theme over the next several weeks of radical faith, of what it means to meld together our our words and our works to begin to live out a mindset different than the mindset of American Christianity. Are you ready to step onto that altar? I want to start this process with radical communion. Radical communion. Now, what the heck is that, right? I know some of you are thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, here he goes again. (laughs) Yep, 
Uh-oh, here I go again. I hope you'll come with me. A new understanding of your salvation and the power of the broken bread and the bloody cup. This will be our blessing of the bread and the cup. Rather than reading from the scripture, I want to read you a descriptive by David Pratt in his book, Radical. Our understanding of who God is and who we are drastically affects our understanding of who Christ is and why we need him. For example, if God is only a loving father who wants to help his people, then we will see Christ as a mere example of that love. We will view the cross as a demonstration of God's love in which he allowed Roman soldiers to crucify his son so that sinful man would know how much he loves us. Now, that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I think it's very much in line with the American gospel message. All right, and Erskine Holt used to say there are two gospel messages that are preached in America today. The first one is Christ died for you. All right, that's the American gospel message. And then the kingdom gospel message is this. I die for Christ. But this picture of Christ and the cross is woefully inadequate, missing the entire point of the gospel. We are not saved from our sins because Jesus was falsely tried by Jewish and Romans officials, sentenced by Pilate to die, Neither are we saved because Roman persecutors thrust nails into his hands and feet of Christ and hung him on a cross. Do we really think that the false judgment of men heaped upon Christ would pay the debt for all humankind's sin? Do we really think that a crown of thorns and whips and nails and a wooden cross and all the other facets of the crucifixion that we glamorize are powerful enough to save us? Picture Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he kneels before his father, drops of sweat and blood fall together from his head. Why is he in such agony and pain? The answer is not because he's afraid of the crucifixion. He is not trembling because of what the Roman soldiers are about to do to him. Since that day, countless men and women in the history of Christianity have died for their faith. Some of them were not just hung on crosses, they were burned there. Many of them went to their crosses singing. One Christian in India, while being skinned alive, looked at his persecutors and said, I thank you for this. Tear off my old garment, for I will soon put on Christ's garment of righteousness. Yeah, wow. As he prepared to head to his execution, Christopher Love wrote a note to his wife saying, Today they will sever me from my physical head, but they cannot sever me from my spiritual head, Christ. As he walked to his death, his wife applauded while he sang to glory. Did these men and women in Christian history have more courage than Christ himself? Why was he trembling in that garden, weeping and full of anguish? 
We can rest assured that he was not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. Instead, he was a savior about to endure divine wrath. Listen to his words. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup is not a reference to a wooden cross. It is a reference to divine judgment. It is the cup of God's wrath. This is what Jesus is recoiling from in the garden. All God's holy wrath and hatred towards sin and sinners stored up since the beginning of the world is about to be poured out on him, and he is sweating blood at the thought of it. What happened at the cross was not primarily about nails being thrust into Jesus' hands and feet, but about the wrath due your sin and my sin being thrust upon his soul. In that holy moment, all the righteous wrath and justice of God do us came rushing down like a torrent on Christ himself. Some say God looked down and could not bear to see the suffering that the soldiers were inflicting on Jesus, so he turned away. But this is not true. God turned away because he could not bear to see your sin and my sin on his son. One preacher described it as if you and I were standing a short hundred yards away from a dam of water 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide. All of a sudden, that dam was breached and a torrential flood of water came rushing toward us. Right before it reached our feet, the ground in front of us opened up and swallowed it all. At the cross, Christ drank the full cup of the wrath of God, and when he had downed the last drop, he turned the cup over and cried out, It's finished! This is the gospel. The just and loving creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. Forever. I want to invite you this morning to come to the table of the broken body and the bloody cup. And remember what started in Gethsemane ended in your freedom. I'm going to invite each of you to come as individuals to take your own cup, to take your own piece of bread, and to spend a moment with the Lord at this altar. And between you and the Lord, deal with this radical act of faith. Because from Christ's perspective, you and I were the joy set before him that allowed him to endure the cross and despise the shame. Let's begin a radical journey of faith by stepping up 
to a radical act of faith by a God so radical that he would leave heaven in holiness to come to earth in sin to set his people free. Come now. Come to the altar of the Lord.